Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes. Fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now. For the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. But like four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. Chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. to go on 
hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity. Buried alive. Buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II. The Wrath of Khan. Opens at a theater near you, June 4th. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Experts. And this is our first episode of our 40th anniversary tribute to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where we'll spend the next year looking back at 40 years of Khan. And uh, it's, amazing. Khan. it's amazing. It's amazing. It doesn't feel that long. It sure doesn't. I mean, 40 is a long time. That's four decades, man. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's longer it. than the time between the end of World War II and when Khan came out. Oh, my goodness. So. Uh, it's frightening. It's frightening. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. Into the future. And uh, I was thrilled when the American Cinematheque approached us, uh, uh, fans of the podcast, and asked uh, you and I to moderate a very special discussion uh, of um, about the 40th anniversary and debut footage from my new documentary, 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever, which will be coming out later this year. Probably in terms of all the films in 1982 that has loomed the largest for me and had the biggest influence on me was Star Trek II The Wrath of God. Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. The first Star Trek movie was really confusing and very disappointing, I think, to a lot of people just because it didn't feel like the show somehow. The movie, the motion picture, uh, ultimately he made money and was successful for them. But at the time, there was a great deal of disappointment because they hoped it would be the same as Star Wars and make billions for the studio. But it didn't. And then Wrath of Khan comes along and it just feels like the best episode of Star Trek you've ever seen. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Buried alive. When Wrath of Khan came out, it hit all the buttons that I wanted. It had the comedy. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. It had the cheer moments. I don't like to lose. The heart and the emotion. Don't grieve him, Admiral. That to me was a completely fulfilling Star Trek movie. And I thought, okay, they know how to do it now. They're on the right track. Thematically, it's really, really sophisticated stuff. As a matter of cosmic history, it has always been easier to destroy than to create. Not anymore. Now we can do both at the same time. According to myth, the Earth was created in six days. Now watch out. Here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. Most of that, if not all of that, comes from Nick Meyer's relative indifference to Star Trek. I think he was able to step outside of the mystique and tell a story that worked by itself. As Robert Bresson said, my job is not to find what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want. If I listened to the public, Spock wouldn't have died. I can't second guess millions of people I never met. My assumption is if I like it, other people will like it. 
the themes of the story began to emerge logically from what I was trying to do. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Message, Spock? None that I'm conscious of. Except, of course, happy birthday. Surely the best of times. So this is going to be a story about friendship, old age, and death. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? It dimensionalized Captain Kirk in a way we hadn't seen. He had a family. He had a son. And it hurts him. I did what you wanted. I stayed away. Why didn't you tell him? How can you ask me that? That, to me, dimensionalizes this sort of heroic character. When they decided to make another movie, I heaved a sigh of relief. I loved uh, doing Star Trek. Captain Kirk was a really interesting character, complex uh, as the writers could make it. And there were times it was very complex, and other times it was very simplistic. Kiss the girl and beat the villain up, which was good fun. I have to say, he was a great hero character, and he played it in such an iconic way. Sometimes that's why you can't escape the characters once you play them. They're so iconic. And of course, we invited two of our favorite guests to come join us. The great Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, and uh, Eddie That's Egan. Right, he was Chekhov, yes. And Eddie Egan, the unit publicist on Star Trek II, who has provided us with so many interesting nuggets about uh, Khan that we hadn't heard before. And yeah. uh, there's really, it's so great to see someone who not only was uh, intimately involved with uh, Star Trek uh, at the time, but a huge fan. Absolutely. Eddie's a huge fan. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's so good to see his enthusiasm, enthusiasm um, <laughs> after all these years, because he's always loved Star Trek. And uh, he, he found it uh, an honor to uh, be able to be the publicist on uh, one and two. And, and, uh, and well, four. two, three and four. Yeah. And then yeah. one he worked on, but he wasn't the unit publicist. On one. Right. Yeah. Right. But he is his, probably his biggest booster. Boy, Absolutely. I see him all the time talking up uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And uh, it was so great to see him reunited with uh, Walter. They had seen each other in many, many years. It was very sweet. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think what was really great, and you'll, you'll see when we play this Q&A that Darren and I did at the American Cinematheque, uh, that um, we, we sent a car to pick up Walter to make sure he didn't have any problem getting to the theater. Um, we probably sent a little too early. He got to the theater, you know, way early, way, way you know, before the Q&A. So we ended up, sitting in the back of the theater watching the movie. And yeah. as you'll see during the Q&A, he keeps stopping, talking about how much he loved the movie. Yeah. He, I hadn't seen it in decades. Yeah. And he's like amazed at how good the film is. It was very sweet to hear. And it made me feel so glad that he could experience, you know, as you'll hear in the, in the Q&A, uh, experience just a little bit of the enjoyment that we get from seeing it. Yeah. And I got I got so many people the next day who were emailing me and uh, uh, calling me. And I ran into a couple of people at a Godfather 2 screening uh, telling me how much they loved the Q&A because, oh, you know, I've been in a lot of Star Trek Q&As. I've done a lot of Star Trek Q&As. Yeah. And this was really one of the greats because Walter was so candid and so honest. And I had such, had such great seems, insights. He seemed so happy. He's the happiest I've ever seen him. Well, you were there when he, you know, we, we were taking him to his car after the screening and he turns and says, I had a lot better time than I thought I would, which oh, coming from Walter. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. The highest uh, uh, compliments you could expect. And yeah. uh, I know the Cinematheque was thrilled. They had a, you know, a nearly sold out crowd. 
um, and have continued to pay tribute. But we're going to continue to revisit Star Trek II. And if you're interested in doing a deeper dive, obviously uh, our interview with Bob Salen from a year or two ago is a yep. terrific way to start. Uh, Darren and I also did our commentary on Star Trek II uh, in uh, association with Paramount about a year ago, which is also available. Um, and I, I have a feeling we might be doing something similar again. Uh, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna be looking in the uh, coming weeks at the uh, Sam Peoples script uh, mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't made uh, for uh, Khan. We'll be looking at um, uh, Space Seed in depth. We'll be looking at a lot of aspects of this movie that I don't think have been uh, looked at very closely in the past that we're hoping to bring a deeper dive as we celebrate 40 years of Khan. And Space also Seed. listen for my pitch to uh, do the audio book of uh, Walter Koenig's uh, Chekhov's Enterprise uh, right here. No, no. I think that would yeah. be fun. Darren Document reads Chekhov's Enterprise <laughs> as Chekhov. As Walter Koenig, yeah. <laughs> That is great. And um, <laughs> but uh, but now, uh, without any further ado, let's go to the American Cinematheque Arrow Theater, where Darren Doctorman and myself sat down with Walter Canning and Eddie Egan uh, to discuss the 40th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So great to see a print and not a DCP. So thank you. The Cinematheque, always doing it right. So awesome. Well, we're, we're absolutely thrilled to have two fantastic uh, guests here to talk about this film for the 40th anniversary. Um, and, of course, I'm talking about none other than Chekhov himself, Pavel Chekhov, Mr. Walter Koenig. Walter, welcome. That was even faster than if we beamed you down. You look like you're ready for Rocky Three. Good to see you. Hi. You brought you brought treats too. What's that? You brought treats. Oh, I thought you brought oh, popcorn. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then also we have, and I understand you haven't seen him in what 20, 30 years. The unit publicist for Star Trek Two, Eddie Egan, is here. Every, every time I hear Eddie, I expect to hear Martin Landau going, right. Eddie. Eddie. I'm so broke. And we got nothing to publicize. We're just going to talk about our love for this movie. So let's have a, have a seat. Should, should we say uh, first officer Chekhov, for crying out loud? <laughs> yeah. Well, you got a promotion in this movie. You were I have what? F- you got a promotion in this movie. You were first, first officer. And... Of course, you wouldn't had the greatest experience in terms of always being the first person to get the call. The animated series, when they were going to do the um, prequel, and uh, you know, even on Star Trek The Motion Picture, you said on Phase 2, you were the last person to find out about it. You must have been very surprised when your character was front and center in Star Trek 2. Was he? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he was front and center. I, I think he, you know, it sort of justified all the years that I had spent eating tuna sandwiches, you know. <laughs> um, I felt like I, at last I was 
being offered an opportunity to uh, contribute, you know, in a uh, in a, a somewhat significant way, and that was great. You know, an actor is an actor is an actor. We just want to work, and um, and you know, Star Trek One. I ah, and that was probably <laughs> it. You know, um, so when, whenever the opportunity arises, we all feel the same way that. Uh, we are part of the ensemble. We are really part of the family. That's, I was watching this today. This, I, I came in in the second half when the Reliant attacks the Enterprise. That's where I came in. And I'm, I'm watching and I'm looking at the, at the, uh, the bridge and all the uh, characters. And I said, we really were a family. You know, there, there really was that sense there. And I, was, and I was thinking, you know, the audience watching this has got to sense that, has got to feel that. It, no small part due to the, our, our principal performers, Bill and Leonard in the forest, who were, were so talented and did such a wonderful job. But you really felt that this was, you were, you were being drawn into a family and um, you were participating along with them. And that's a wonderful sense. It's a wonderful feeling that I didn't know I would have after 40 years. You know, it's, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, everybody was so good. And although, you know, I'm going to probably grind a couple of molars down to the, uh, to the um, very bone when I say this, but Bill was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done with Walter? <laughs> <laughs> no, he really was. He was great. And, you know, you can't take umbrage with, you know, Khan. You can't. You can't do that. You can't. You can't ridicule that or find fault with that. That's an actor giving everything he has. That's an actor totally investing himself in the role. And uh, we've seen we've, we've seen a lot of leading men uh, whose lips never move. You know, uh, and we come to accept that as the. Uh, the, the, the prototype or the com- the uh, the, uh, the component that we look for, you know, an actor is, feels it in his heart and in his soul and and everywhere. And uh, Bill gave it. He he left nothing, you know, uh, on the on the drawing table. He he was there. So um, I think everybody should should you know appreciate him and. The you know what's transpired subsequently, it's not what this is about today, and I'm not going to belabor it. Um, so just just know that as an actor of sixty years as I am, that I appreciate talent, and I have enormous respect for it. And Mr. Shatner certainly displayed that in this film. Well, people forget you know it's space opera, and the cast sort of. You know, understood that on the original show, and um, it's larger than life, and 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 that's why it's so iconic. So I want to ask you because on the first movie you worked with the great Robert Wise, this legendary film director. He cut Citizen Kane. He directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, West Side Story. Then you come to set on Star Trek II, and there's this young punk, Nick Meyer. He directed one movie. Um, he he's written some books. Um, uh, he 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 loved to talk about how smart he was, and he was. Um, but uh, what was your feeling uh, about it? Because 
it must have been remarkable there even was a sequel happening. Well, that's true. That's, we'll start with that. I bet uh, John Provo, Pro, Provo um, right. who was one of the associate producers, I'm spitting popcorn, excuse <laughs> me, um, um, that we would not make a sequel. That after uh, Star Trek One, that was it, we're done, so long, goodbye, here's your hat, what's, what's going to happen with the rest of your life, you know? Um, so, uh, and, and, and uh, Nick is ext- extraordinarily bright, very cultured, uh, and as an interesting coincidence, we went to the same private school, 10 years apart. Huh. Um, I graduated in 54, and he graduated in 64. And he brought that to my attention because my, my first book w- w- was out, and uh, it mentioned that. It mentioned Fieldston. And uh, he ended up coming over to the house, he, he, and his date was Bill Shatner's daughter. <laughs> yeah. And, and Harlan uh, Ellison w- was there with his wife. Um, it was a very, very interesting evening. Extra- two, <laughs> two extraordinary intellects. And they went at each other, and it was just delightful to watch. I, 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 would, have, I would definitely would have paid uh, if, I, if I had been required. In any event, Nick is a terrific, terrific writer. And he has just a great sense of structure. I read uh, The Wrath of Khan, and I knew this was a winner. I, I had no idea about Star Trek The Motion Picture. I was just so grateful to be, you know, be involved in it. Um, and I, all the signs were there with the Motion Picture. You know, we'd come in at 7 or 8 in the morning, and we'd tell not to, we were told not to get dressed and, uh, and uh, not to get into makeup. And we'd sit and eat bagels and coffee for, you know, till, till noon. Uh, and then we wouldn't, uh, then we'd go out to lunch and we'd come back and it's, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. We, that, that was a movie that unfortunately, was, and you, by now everybody knows, everybody knows what, what transpired there, the deadlines they had and the, and the, mo- the movie theaters demanding that, uh, that we fulfill our contracts and, and and bring the picture in on time so they could release it at a certain point. Um, but when I when I came, when I read uh, the Wrath of Khan, I said, "This has got everything. This has got the 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 fundamental element that is required in a melodrama. Certainly in a melodrama, maybe in any drama, but that is the." Um, unstoppable force and the immovable object. When they collide, what happens? You have that extraordinary, intense conflict. And, and how brilliant it was that they were never in the same room at the same time. And still, you got that. You got all of that. You got the anger, the passion, and the hate uh, between Kirk and, and Khan. And it was gripping. It was just so involving and so gripping. Um, so that that movie was as, as if you were a, a writing instructor in a professional uh, or in a college or in a professional theater group, and were asked to lay down the fundamental elements that were required to make a successful screenplay. And this is it. This movie is it. It just it works on every level. Well, it's interesting because you didn't just have more to do on screen. 
you had more behind the scenes as well. Unlike on motion picture where you're an actor who comes and says his lines, Harv Bennett, who was new, didn't know as much about Star Trek as you guys. And you ended up becoming involved in giving him counsel on the script, doing what you called the Trekkie runs. Right, right. I wasn't invited. I just sort of volunteered. Uh, well, the thing that I saw that was so astonishing that I, I, I didn't understand um, that it hadn't been called to Mr. Bennett's attention before me was that you can't kill Spock in the second act. You just can't do it. That's the climax of your story. You know, Spock, Kirk, and the Enterprise. Those are the, the three elements that, you know, that the fans have totally embraced and that have to be there. And they, and they have to, if they're going to uh, have a demise, then they have, it has to be a glorious uh, kind of event. It's got to be something incredibly theatrical and dramatic, as was Spock's death. That was, it was brilliant. It was brilliantly done. It was brilliantly done by Leonard, brilliantly done by Bill. Everything about it just worked, and it was your fin finale to your, san to your story. But there was one thing you didn't tell Harv. You didn't tell Harv you weren't in Space Seed. No. <laughs> so when I started being asked by the fans, you know, they started coming up to me and saying, well, you weren't in a Space Seed. How did the con recognize you? So my answer was, um, well, actually, I was in Space uh, Chekhov was in Space Seed. He was working on the third deck behind the boiler room and was so sick with a condition called Malapropsky's malady that he's been in the bathroom for hours and hours. Or poor <laughs> Mr. Khan, his 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 uh, genetically in, uh, engineered kidneys uh, in great in great pain pounded pitifully on the bathroom door until finally the door opened. Chekhov stepped out. Khan grabbed him and said, your face, I will never forget. <laughs> I never forget a face, Mr. Chuckle. Isn't it? I never thought to see your face again. Chekhov, who is this man? Criminal captain. A product of late 20th century genetic engineering. Eddie, I have to ask you, three of the four of us are huge fans of Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, on this stage. <laughs> three of the four of us. Uh, I won't say which three and which isn't, but uh, I think we got the idea. So I want to ask you, in terms of marketing um, Star Trek II, one of the things you were really trying to do was convince people this isn't Star Trek One, the one sheet, the marketing materials, etc. Can you talk about that and sort of you know, and then also having to deal with the revelation that Spock, you know, this is long before Twitter and Elon Musk and all this stuff with, um, you know, people didn't find out the ends of movies. This was a huge deal when it got out that Spock on the front of the Wall Street Journal, of all things, that Spock was going to die. Yeah. I, um, first of all, let me say how nice it is to see you again. I, I, I one of the joys of working on the Star Trek movies uh, during my career at Paramount was getting to be with people who were living legends that, you know, I, 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 was, a I was a kid, I was 23 when I worked, when we worked together on Star Trek Three, And uh, it's just great to see you again. Um, one, of the, one of the things we did, uh, partly as a matter of, of strategy and partly a matter of practicality was we closed the set completely down. 
the first time I met Leonard Nimoy, who was obviously very concerned about the rumors about the what uh, what happened to Spock in Star Trek Two, he's he's he said to me, "What? Well, what's the strategy?" And I said, "Well, we're not going to say anything." He went, "Oh." He was delighted. We just kept everyone away. I was, I was, uh, you know, I was there to engage with fans who would write or call. Uh, we would, I would tell them that no, Paramount does not hate Star Trek because they're they're producing a series of a series of movies, and uh, it's in good hands with uh, with with creative people in charge, and. The most delicate thing to, uh, uh, to, 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 to deal with in terms of fandom, as opposed to the, me- the mass media, was the involvement, not involvement, of Gene Roddenberry, because uh, you know he was running his own campaign, which was counter to the studio's campaign, and um, we just kept everything quiet about what would happen. We didn't deny anything nor did we confirm anything uh we the day that they filmed leonard's uh death scene uh i remember going and taking the neck the, the the 35 millimeter film from the still photographer wasn't developed until well after the release um and as you as you say it was a different time it, it things didn't there there was no internet there was no Entertainment Tonight actually debuted during the during the production of Star Trek II, and with no warning, they showed up on the set one day when they were filming the scene with Scotty's nephew dying, mm. and they were both Paramount shows. So <laughs> I, I, I would have you know like called security, but that wouldn't have done anything in that case. <laughs> they thought Ike Eisenman was the star of the movie. Yes, um, you know. Uh, Walter, going back to like the first the first few days on set on Trek Two, how did Nick Meyer sort of establish himself in the directorial seat? What what was his you know first moments with the cast like? Let me jump forward a moment. Okay. Well into shooting, uh, we were I don't know several weeks into shooting, and uh, we sat down one day and we were talking. And he was telling me about an experience he had had directing a film before he directed Star Trek. And um, how difficult he found it dealing with the star. Right. It made his life miserable. Um, Malcolm, not, Malcolm McDowell, I believe. Pardon? Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell. McDowell yeah. I beg your pardon? Yeah, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't Malcolm McDowell. Mary no, Steenburgen. It, it wasn't Malcolm McDowell. Huh. It was... Was another actor, David, David Warner? Warner? No, it wasn't. Time, it wasn't time after time. It was another movie. But, okay. Are you telling me that he de- never directed another movie? Oh, it was. You know what it was? Seven Percent Solution, which he wrote and didn't direct. But Nicole Williamson was an asshole. Who? Nicole Williamson. He's a legendary like nightmare, but he's you awesome. Know, I must be living in an, in, in another dimension here. Because I remember a totally different experience that he told me about. <laughs> and that's not, it's, it's only relevant in terms of this guy made his life. Oh, I know who it was. Yeah, I know who it was. <laughs> um, I'm available for personal appearances. <laughs> 
my fee is no. Yeah. So um, and, and the star made made life very difficult for for Nick. So you know, I have over the years thought about if that affected the way he uh, approached working with us, and I can tell you it didn't. He came in as if he expected everybody to cooperate with him. He was not defensive. He was not apologetic. Um, uh, he didn't try to m make us his buddies. Right. You know, he was there as a professional and quite a brilliant professional, as a matter of fact. Um, so, but there was that one moment which I documented in my first autobiography, um, where he called us all into his trailer. Nick did. Uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban and everybody else. And, uh, and so Bill is there and everybody is there. And Nick says, uh, okay, this, it's going, it's, you know, we, would, we were still doing readings. I don't think we had actually shot anything. Mm. We were still doing table readings. And he said, uh, Ricardo, I think what you're doing is a little big. You know, it's, it's got to be brought down a little bit. And I went, oh my God, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> I thought, you know, my my reaction was you would, if you had said that to Bill, you would have had a totally different kind of response. And it would have been humiliating for everybody involved. That's the way I felt. I may be wrong. Bill might have been great about it. They might have given him a, a pen and pencil set. I don't know. But what Ricardo did was, ah, I see what you mean. Holy shit. I mean, this is a movie star. This is a guy who's starred in motion pictures. And this young guy with very little, you know, experience is directing him. And he was wonderful about it. And that's the way Ricardo was through the entire film. Um, he was totally there. He was totally respectful of everybody else. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, as, as big a performance as he gave, it was totally appropriate for the circumstances. Right. And you say soap opera, you say, you know, uh, all of that. I just bought it. I, I, I wasn't saying, mm, it's a little much, you know. But he did come down. He did come back from, Nick asked him to, and it was one professional to another, and he just totally re re responded in kind. I love what Ricardo said to him after that, which is, ah, you're going to direct me. I'm not used to that. He goes, I need to be directed. I have no idea what I'm doing. And he'd been doing <laughs> Fantasy Island for all these years. So he had no idea how to go back and play Khan. So he was just doing the big mustache twirling performance. And Nick sort of, you know, brought some nuance to it. And yeah. he's so great. Yeah. And then you did that first scene with him in the cargo carrier where he picks you up and is torturing you. Was he, do you remember, you know, what that, what, what that was like as Ricardo was sort of dialing in his performance? He, 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 you know, good actors don't give other actors direction. You know, you just don't do that <laughs> under any circumstance. And he certainly understood that. He had a history of, you know, being a motion picture star. And uh, he understood, you know, where the, where the lines were. And you don't do that. I once had that experience um, with um, Gary. Gary. 
the lieutenant. Oh, Gary Lockwood. Gary Lockwood. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He started giving me line readings. <laughs> uh, this was on the lieutenant. Right. And I stopped him. And, you know, he was the lead. He was, you know, the star. And I'm just a guest performer. And I said, Gary, don't do that. Don't, don't tell me how to read the line. That just freezes me. He says, okay, sorry. And he didn't do it again. And that's the way it should always be. Actors should always respect each other that way. Um, but Ricardo was just, just wonderful, just delightful to work with. You know, watching this movie again, forgive me if, I, if I'm repeating myself, but this is really a wonderful film. Yeah. It's truly yeah. a wonderful film. I'm so glad that uh, I, I got to see it again. You know, I never, I never, and somebody had invited me and asked me to, to come. I, I, I wouldn't have thought about going, but uh, how, how neat it was to see everybody work and, and work so beautifully and, you know, and maintain that tension and that, and, uh, and that drama. Uh, it, it was, it's just, a, it's just, you know, that and Voyage Home, obviously, for obvious reasons, are um, my favorite of the Star Trek films, um, but with, with good cause, I think. I mean, they, they, they merit the approbation um, because they were so well done. You know, Walter, that's so nice to hear for many reasons, but mostly because we've, you know, talked to various actors who have been in the Star Trek productions before, and one of the saddest things is that sometimes they don't even watch the productions that they're in, right? And so they have no idea how we respond to these films or TV shows or whatever. And for you to get even a little bit of the enjoyment that we get from it, that's just wonderful. And Good. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> Good. Well, it certainly deserves it. The pictures deserve it. You know, I've, I've seen films that I thought were terrific and wonderful, and I was, I was euphoric about them, uh, just pictures in general. And then I see them a second time, and they don't hold up. Yeah. You know, even like five or eight years later, they don't hold up. Um, this is, doesn't feel dated at all, yeah. you know. I mean, the performances are so, so good, and, and the pacing is so good, and what it has to say about human nature, and the fact that we have an antagonist who is not, you know, a monster that, that is not made out of metal or made out of hair, you know, <laughs> uh, but is, is a human being, you know, certainly a human being at the end of his rope, you know, with an, you know, an exceptional amount of passion and, and anger. But he's relating to circumstances that we can all relate to, the loss of a loved one. Yeah. He lost his wife, you know, and, and who, who, who else to blame but Captain Kirk when, when you can't get any more focused than that? You can, and you can't. You can't blame the Federation. We never bring them into it, you know. So it's got to be people on the screen. So having that situation, that kind of conflict where you, you, you hate you hate him, and, you, and, and, and sticking those worms down our, in our ears is a horrible thing. But at the same time, part of you, despite yourself, can't help but say, yeah, I get it, you know? Well, there's a reason we're celebrating this film 40 years later and not Kenny Rogers and Six Pack 
Nobody remembers that from 1982. <laughs> you know, Mary Tyler Moore and what was it, seven, 12 weeks? Anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> some, of, some of those films have fallen by the wayside, but Khan is probably one of the most screened films and repertory. I mean, it seems like it's screening every, you know, every month you can see Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan somewhere. And now it's, it's hard to believe yet, like you said, this movie from 40 years ago um, and how well it holds up and how timeless it is. And science fiction often dates the worst, um, but it just looks amazing. I want to ask you, because you've talked about this, because The Reliant was a redress of the Enterprise and you were with uh, Paul Winfield and uh, on the other ship and, and Ricardo, you were making another movie for a long time. What was that like? I mean, you were you were basically off with uh, a completely different cast than you had worked with in the past um, when you were doing all these scenes aboard the Reliant. I mean, because you worked, what, 13 days on this movie total or something like that? A lot of them were away from the cast that you had been with all these years. Well, I loved it. <laughs> I... I, I I didn't have the, the the stress of working with Mr. Shatner, you know. I mean, I, I you know, I give him his glory. I I I, I gave him all the uh, you know the uh, gratitude for the work and his appreciate and appreciation of how well he performed. But he was a pain in the ass. <laughs> and uh, in working with Paul, who I'd actually gone on a double date with. He, uh, several years before, um, my wife was a, f- a friend of his girlfriend, and we four of us went out on a date. But working with, with those people, I just felt so liberated. I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't a tertiary character, right. you know. I wasn't even a secondary character, you know. You were the big fish in that pond. Well, I was, I was important to the, yeah. to that part of the story. Um, God knows I have an ego, you know, and I, um, so I, I totally, I totally enjoyed it. In fact, the worst moment in the two years I worked on the series, and the six and seven movies that I did, the worst moment I had was just, just, just after I, I actually came in today. When we're standing on the transporter room, uh, transporter pad, yeah, thing, and uh, and we're going to be transported out, and we're down into the basement, whatever the hell it was that we were transported, and uh, and uh, this is what I don't understand because when I watched it today, I was looking for this and I I didn't see it, but Kirk was standing here. And I was standing behind him. And uh, I was about this much covered by him, but this much uh, seen, because he was standing in front of me. And he turned and he said, uh, Walter, um, if he remembered my name, I'm not quite sure he, he did. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, could you move a little bit more that way? And I said, uh, this is where the director this is where Nick told me to stand. He said, yeah, I know, but could you just please... I said, Bill, I'm just doing what you're doing. I'm just doing what you do. He says, I don't do that. That's neurotic. I don't do that. I went home that night, and I was in such pain. I cannot tell you the cramps that I had. I was so angry. 
I'm so angry. He just wanted me out of the shot. So that it was fully on him. That was what it was all about. So that was the worst moment I had in seven movies in two years on, on Worse than the pink little Lord Fauntleroy outfit from Star oh. Trek Three. Kidding. I loved it. <laughs> no, I didn't like that particularly. And in fact, Leonard got angry at me when he came up to me. The, 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 I'm jumping around here. I'm 85, guys, so you got to <laughs> take into account. <laughs> Leonard came up to me. The, I've just been turned off? No. No? no. We can uh, hear you. Oh, you can hear me? Okay. I really am 85. Okay. Um, <laughs> Then it came up to me the, uh, the day after we shot the stuff in the pink outfit. Uh, the young, not uh, Pushkin. Pushkin, the young yes. Pushkin. Yeah, that's what they were looking for, that look. Um, and he said, we're not going to use the, the uh, pink outfit anymore. And I said, ah, oh, thank God. And he looked at me and said, well, why didn't you say something? I mean, he got a little upset. Why didn't I say something? Because for two years on the television series, and with Mr. Wise in uh, control, I mean, Mr. Wise, Orson, you know, was Orson Welles' editor, and he did so, and West Side Story and everything you said. So I, I wasn't going to say anything. And I had been conditioned to being this, you know, this guy that's mo mostly movable furniture. So it didn't occur to me that I could say, so I, that I could... Uh, you know, uh, feel uncomfortable about about wearing a pink outfit like that. <laughs> so that taught me something. That taught me to, you know, speak up. Stand up for what you believe in, you know. Fortunately, there wasn't many cases. I, I don't want to put the sense out there that, that, you know, I was in a turbulent state and that I was grousing and that, um, and that there was a lot of friction on the set. There wasn't. There wasn't. Um, it was, I mean, it was, the sets were generally really very nice to work on. Um, not everybody got a fair shake. Um, George did not get a fair shake. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I've wondered about it over the years. I, I'm, I know I'm jumping around, but you wanted to hear just more than my, my few little comments about Star Trek too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, George um, had a very strong cultural sense of identity, and it was very important to him that his character be promoted. It was you know, very important to his sense of who he was, um, to his family, to his culture, to everything. For me, you could have broken me, you know, back down to an ensign, stuck me you know, in the brig and just giving me a four-minute soliloquy and I would have been in heaven, you know. That's, uh, I'm an actor, I'm an actor. I'm not, I'm not a captain or, you know, a, a lieutenant or any of that stuff. That's the way, that's the way I, I approach my life as an actor, first of all. So, um, so I don't know what the hell I was saying. <laughs> so you, who didn't really care whether you were promoted or not, you get the promotion, and and poor George has to wait four more films. Yeah, and you know, and I didn't know that there was you know conferences going on behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, I never went to Gene's office. 
I went to his office once when we were doing Star Trek One, and um, I don't remember what it was about. But I, I said to him, you know, when I get burned, I could say something like, uh, "Absolutely, I will not interfere." And he, and he put it in the, in the script. Yeah. You know, it was my line. He put it in the script. But I, I never, I never did any of that politicking again. Not because I didn't think it was good or smart or professional. But because I didn't know you could, right. <laughs> you know, I, I just didn't have that sense that we, we had that. I was so conditioned to being the supporting actor. And I think that's what's what, what, what I know. That's what I was going to say. <sighs> um, George, we don't we don't talk anymore. OK, um, I tell you that so you know that what I'm saying is really true, uh, because if I say what I'm going to say, and uh, and and I say this in a complimentary way to George. You know, it's got to be true, right? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say something complimentary if we don't talk. <laughs> At least I don't do that. In any case, he he got you know the Green Beret thing was was an unfortunate circumstance. He got to work with John Wayne for an extra six weeks. I'm not so sure about that, but. Um, <laughs> uh, so he lost several good good episodes as a consequence of that, and then um, he didn't have much to do in Star Trek One, the motion picture, and uh, three he got a little bit more to do, and in five and six he got a little bit more, but still he didn't have as representative a role, I think, as the rest of us did, and in fact in 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 four, he had a lovely scene, which I had um, actually suggested to him, where he meets a, a young uh, Asian-American kid on the street in San Francisco. And the way George had it in his mind, because he had talked to Harv Bennett about it, was that the kid was going to ask him why he's wearing those clothes. And I said, no, 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 there's a better thing you can do. This kid could be your great, great, great grandfather. And he says, oh, my, yes. <laughs> We could do that, couldn't we? So he, he pitched it to Harv, and Harv said yes. So they got this kid, and the kid wouldn't do it. Yeah. He wouldn't do it. He just said it, no, no, not going to do it. And the sun started to go yep. down. It was so painful to watch. And Leonard talked to the kid. And uh, I don't know who else, but I know several people. And the kid kept saying, no. And, and, and he was, had been cast. So finally they decided to use his brother, who was about three, four years older. Not as cute, not as you know, charming a scene, but at least they could get it in the can. By then, the sun had dropped. They couldn't shoot it. Yeah. They told George they were going to come back and shoot it. But I knew they weren't. Yeah. I had overheard them saying that they were not going to come back and shoot it. Uh, I did not say this. I did not tell this to George. Huh? I don't know why. What I don't know what good it would have been done. Would it have done for me to say they're not going to come back and shoot you, George? I, I wrestled with it, but I finally decided that I let them negotiate it. In any case, um, so uh, so, so. But we had we had been a part of Star Trek in the '60s, and in the '60s it was. There really was a caste system. Mm -hmm. 
C-A-S-T-E, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's spelled, um, where you had your, your stars and the supporting players, and there was very much, there's a big distinction between them. And you could see that just in the credits. You know, Leonard, Bill, and DeForest got credits in front of the story, and our credits were interwoven with the guest cast. It, it wasn't as if we even had our own set of credits. You know, they had this guy, and then they had one of us, and then this guy. So, but that was the system. That's the way they operated. That's the, that's the functioning of the industry at that time. And we just all accepted it. And, and, and you know, and that is by way of saying that um, that is also part of why Bill uh, treated us the way he did, because that's the way it, it, was, it, was, it was being done normally. That isn't to say there weren't great uh, lead characters in television series who weren't, you know, wonderful to their, to their supporting cast members. I'm sure that was true as well. But certainly this was a, a situation, an environment in which we, uh, we uh, operated. And speaking of television, it's interesting to note the movie was produced under the TV division. It's one of the reasons Gary Nardino was head of Paramount Television. He went on to produce Star Trek III. Um, did you ever think there was a danger of this ending up on TV or it was just a way of, of cost mitigating, Eddie? I mean, that was, uh, you know, there was never plans for it to show up on TV. It was always going to be a, a movie. And, you know, one of the other things you said that was interesting, that Gary always had in the back of his head that if the movie bombed, then maybe Kirsty and Merritt, they could spin them off as their own TV series. Yeah, um, yeah. it was produced. I, I don't know how it worked with you guys and, and contracts and all that, but the movie division knew it was always going to be a movie. Absolutely. But it was produced with um, different hours, different uh, agreements with the guilds to bring down the cost from the horrendously over budget first movie. Um, but it filmed on a regular schedule. It was like, like 49 or 51 days. Um, but it was always intended for uh, theatrical release. It started shooting the first week of November, I think, and finished the f first week of February with a little break over Christmas. Um, I don't think, I think Walter, you and Paul started on the exterior set, the uh, the the uh, Seti Alpha Phi set with the sandstorm, and then you did the cargo bay stuff. And by then, all the Enterprise stuff had been wrapped, and they were redressing the Enterprise for the Reliant. Mm. And that was filmed after afterwards. But it was always coming out June 4th, um, right. 1982. A couple of fun facts about that. It was the top-grossing movie we uh, in the history of movies the uh, highest time. grossing movie at that time in one for the opening weekend it was for non-holiday weekend yeah. so and and that was opening against poltergeist that weekend june 4th yeah. 1982 poltergeist and star trek 2 opened on the the same day um and uh, it was a huge hit obviously star trek 3 happened fairly quickly after that i know we're almost out of time so we should probably see if there are any quick questions before we wrap up there's so much more to say about this movie and of course um i want to really recommend if you haven't read it it's out of print but it's a wonderful book that walter wrote about star trek the motion picture called uh, chekhov's enterprise you know a lot of the actors and i'm not going to say who have ghostwriters walter writes all this stuff himself and it has his insights and uh 
uh, acerbicness and intelligence, and they're wonderful books. He also, his biography, Warped Factors, was recently reissued as well. So um, you should really check it out because they're terrific and they're honest looks at the making of Star Trek and, of course, his very long career, including, you know, Babylon 5 and uh, we won't mention the Star Lost and um, uh, <laughs> Lieutenant and all these these wonderful roles that Walter's had. Uh, go ahead. Uh, thank you for being here, Walter. Um, you were at the vanguard of science fiction in the 60s, and now 50 years of technology and science have passed. In those 50 years, what technological and scientific advances do you enjoy the most, and which has surprised you the most? Well, I, I, I like the, uh, the for those be, behind this gentleman, uh, he asked me uh, what uh, technological advances have transpired in the last 50 years that I, that I uh, enjoy the most uh, when there was some other part to that. And, that's, and that surprised you the most. Oh, that surprised me the most. Well, I, I don't put anything, uh, first of all, I, I am so ignorant technologically. I am the absolute... Uh, stereotypical old guy who doesn't know how to work anything, you know. Uh, my cell phone has about 30 different things it can do. I can do three, you know. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just walking living proof that time marches on and some people just, you know, are dragging along behind it. Um, you know, watching this movie, the, you know, one thing that, that I, I, I found myself re reacting to, and it's very, very minute, is the scene on the bridge of the Enterprise when you see Khan and his group on the other ship. It is so clear, it is so right there, that I felt that felt like they're with us, that there, there wasn't any kind of a, an environmental difference between... The, the people on that ship and us. And I would have liked to have felt something. I don't know, some kind of an, an aura or some kind of a, what's the, what's the word that people use? Um, changing the, the sound. Ambiance? Oh, no. uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Ambiance, yeah. Some kind of a different ambiance because it just felt... To make it not seem like it was just you're looking through a window. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, it was really funny when, when they were filming the Enterprise stuff, um, I, I, I'm not going to remember this lovely woman's name who was the script supervisor. Dorothy Montana? Dorothy or Agnes? Oh, no. Um, she would read all Khan's oh, lines. lines, right. It was, I mean, it, 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 if you could dig that stuff out of Paramount's archives, it was so deadly. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm sure Walter knows what I'm talking about when an actor goes, they move here close-ups and you have a script supervisor saying the lines and it's hard to work. It's it's not really the an ideal dynamic for an actor. He tasked me and I shall have him. Oh, yeah. it was. <laughs> oh, no, it was much flatter than that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, before these cinematic universes, Eddie, you were the one who first told us that Paramount was, after the success of this movie, was developing a con spinoff at the time uh, with John Hughes. John Hughes, who had written, you know, would later go on and do Breakfast yeah. Club and Ferris Bueller. He was a big writer. He did Nathan Hayes for Paramount at the time. He was developing a SETI Alpha 5 spinoff for Khan. 
for Paramount that yeah. never saw the light of a projector bowl, but it was uh, it was something that they had in development, which is a really interesting piece yeah. of ephemera. But uh, last question, because we got to get wrap up. I'm getting the one the one minute, so you have the honor of the last question. Thank you, well, thank you for coming. Uh, what did you think of Cumberbatch's con? Oh, what did you think of Cumberbatch's con? He was great in Doctor Strange, right? Yeah. Um... <laughs> You know, you have to take into consideration where I'm coming from. I have a proprietary sense of Star Trek, about sense of Star Trek. And uh, I'm, I'm matching everybody against our group, you know, uh, and making a judgment uh, on that basis. So, uh, but, 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 but the thing about Spock is... And I've said this before, and, and perhaps you even heard my, my say this, and that's why you've asked the question. There are a thousand actors in Hollywood who could have given a viable, important, uh, um, powerful performances as Kirk, Scotty, Sulu, Uhura, McCoy, and Chekhov. But my sense was there was only one person who was Spock. And everybody else who played him was going to be pretending. And uh, first of all, his character was so distinct. And, uh, and Leonard was, was Spock all the time. He was Spock all the time. You know, uh, I, I accepted that. I came on in the second season, so I was, uh, you know, saying, saying to myself already, you know, un unconsciously or subconsciously, that I, I, you know, I, 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 everything is, is, is in motion and I'm just going along with the flow. So there's no, no place for me to, to, uh, to question what's going on. So when Leonard was always Spock, I just accepted it. I, I, I didn't realize that this actually, you know, in, influenced his whole, his whole life, his family, the circumstances of his family life. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Um, the time that uh, in Star Trek four or five or whatever it was, we were sitting in our chairs and uh, Leonard and Bill started talking about a problem that Leonard had at home. And I was like, well, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Spock doesn't have any problems at home. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was a remarkable thing to me uh, to see how totally... Um, in, in, he, he had embraced this character. And once, I, I, I'm, you know, there's a bit of hyperbole in my conversation. You'll have to forgive me, I'm an actor. Um, <laughs> once uh, he came up, once I came up to him and I said to him, uh, Leonard, this was at a moment when he was not being Spock. I said, Leonard, uh, we were all invited to this convention in Texas. And... Uh, and they're asking me to be the intermediary and, and find out if you're available. And he says, well, this was like August, July or August and the convention was going to be uh, eight months. He says, well, ask me, ask me at Christmas. And I said, okay, okay. And uh, came December and he didn't wait for me to ask him. He asked me, he says, what's, what's uh, going on? I said, oh, they're going forward with it. Yeah, and they would love to know if you were going to come. And say, so help me. <laughs> help me. 
I don't know how to tell you this, but then he looked at me and lifted his fucking eyebrow. <laughs> and just looked at me. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to freaking kill him. And he was Spock again. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That was great. Well, that was 1982. That was Ultimate Fantasy in Texas. I want to say, if you want to hear more great stories about Star Trek, and we had a great talk with Walter about the motion picture and with Eddie about all the lost scenes from Star Trek II, among other things, check out our podcast, Inglorious Trexperts. But more importantly, a huge thank you to our guests, Eddie Egan, Walter Koenig, legendary Walter Koenig, and of course, the American Cinematheque for putting on this amazing festival. So thank you, Grant. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, thank everybody, everybody, for coming. Well, there you have it. At the at the center of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Oh my God! See, <laughs> that's so funny you say that because I was just about to say there. You see, at the end of Montana Avenue lies the beginning of vengeance. So, uh, boy, we both we're, we're both uh, we're on the same wavelength there. There, go figure. <laughs> well, there's certainly uh, you know if there's no vengeance, then there's certainly no parking spaces. Yes, that's true. That's the biggest problem with that theater: lack of parking. <laughs> but uh, but I have to say, there's no lack of great restaurants. We had a wonderful meal at uh, Forma. Yeah, uh, Forma. That was terrific. Uh, they had a wonderful pasta, uh, cheese. Uh, it was quite delicious. Quite, quite delicious. delicious. And if you'd like to sponsor this podcast next time, we're we, certainly welcome we'd, to. We'd we be welcome delighted. any offers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was but yeah. Uh, that was that was such a fun uh, such a fun afternoon with uh, Walter and Eddie. Yeah. And uh, as I said, it was so good to see Walter. You know, light up. You know, he, he was he was the most animated that I've seen him in years. Well, that's because he wasn't in the animated series. Oh, see, see where you go. Yeah. Oh. yeah. You know, it's a challenge doing these Q&As because you don't want to ask the same questions they've been asked a thousand times. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, you know, we had talked to Nick about coming, um, but unfortunately yep. he was out of town that weekend. He said, please, you know, I love doing these. Invite me the next time. But I'm in a way, I'm glad because. I've seen Nick talk about this. We've had him on the show and talked about it. I don't know how much left there is for Nick to say. And um, I don't know. I, I bet we could get I bet we could get stuff out of him that had never been heard before. Well, I want to ask him. I want to ask him about that dinner at Harlan's house. Heck yeah. I want to see if he remembers anything about taking Bill Shatner's daughter to Harlan oh, Ellison's house. And wow. what that was like. Could you imagine what did they discuss? How would it have been? To have been there, <laughs> I'm telling you, radio drama. Yeah, what? My, I'm, my, my, my I'm night ready in, to go. Let's do it. Allison's Wonderland, a night in Allison's Wonderland. I know we got to think about That's, that. It'd be a yeah. lot of work, but it could be a lot of fun. Do you do a good Nick Meyer? Uh, no, but I can work on it. Okay, I'll I'll work on it in uh, in June when I go to uh, Wonderfest in uh, in. Uh, uh, What's Wonderfest? Wonderfest is a, it started out as a, uh, a modeling convention. For uh, models? Not, not, not fashion models, but oh, the plastic oh. models. Oh, oh, oh that's and, interesting. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating because it, uh, uh, it, it's down in, uh, uh, my mind is a blank, but it's, it's down in the, in the 40 Midwest. 40 years since gone, what do you expect? In the, in the, in the lower Midwest, and, and Nick Meyer is going to be a guest there as well. To talk about models. And, uh, to talk well to talk about Star Trek Two oh, cool. and other things, nice and, and no doubt Sherlock Holmes. Of course, that's great. 
Well, his new Sherlock Holmes book, uh, I think, is out, and uh, the previous one is in paperback. And yep. I really enjoyed it. I have to read the new one. Yeah. Um, I always enjoy his writing. His, his autobiography is terrific. Um, yeah, I really, I really, really a fun know. Read. View from the Bridge. View from the Bridge. And uh, I guess they, they released an expanded version on audio, but uh, I'd read the book when it first came out in hardcover, and right. I really enjoyed it. Um, I always find, uh, you know, it, it's how Walter described Persis Kambata. She said she had a refreshing narcissism about her. Nice. And that's kind of how yeah. I feel about Nick has that Peter Bogdanovich refreshing narcissism, but it's well-earned because he's so smart. Nick's going to be Nick's going to be down at Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, Louisville, that's Kentucky. Where, well, there you go. Yes. You could call that the, uh, you know, the real Kentucky Derby is at Wonderfest. Well, we'll, we'll be right next to uh, Auric Goldfinger. Oh yeah. You're going to rob Fort Knox. <laughs> I, if we are, I can't say it. Yeah. You know what? When you fly into the airport, you got to play Dawn raid at Fort Knox. From John Barry's score to Goldfinger. I used to do that when I would, I used to go to NAPTI, which is a big TV convention in Miami, and you'd land uh, at Miami. Every time you fly into Miami, you got to go, yeah, I'd put on my Walkman, not my Walkman, my iPad. Absolutely. And I would have into Miami. Absolutely. And I stayed at the Fountain Blue, which was amazing because it was like where, you know, James Bond stayed and, you know, but I couldn't find Goldfinger or Dink. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but that was that was a fun it was a fun trip to being at the Fountain Blue and of course always good to fly into Miami. Duh. Yeah, so because it has that big banner, "Welcome to Miami," flying over the hotel at the beginning of the. There you go. That's a great shot that Guy Hamilton does with the diving off the the board. Yeah, it's um it's amazing. But you know why he does it? Because he's marrying the two shots. He's marrying um the shots which they shot on location in right. Florida with the stuff they shot on the stage at Pinewood. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Because Sean Connery was never there. It was all shot. All his scenes were shot on stage. So, but they did a Felix gonna... Leiter. They had Felix Leiter at uh, uh, at the hotel. Nobody cares about this. Why am I was, going no. on about this? Nobody cares. That's, a, that's on the Bondsperts show. Yeah, exactly. And Glorious Bondsperts, which we almost did. But then I I, uh, I hated No Time to Die so much that I said, ah, forget it. Now. It's it but was time to die. But, you know, we are going to be launching a new uh, podcast here on the uh, podcast network on the Electric Surge. Um, uh, our, our, our guest host on the Trexperts Briefing Room, Peter Holmstrom, is going to be anchoring a new show called Best TV Never Made, which will be a sister show nice. of Best Movies Never Made. And uh, it's going to be launching this summer. And I think it's going to be a really special show. We're very excited about it. And it will be on alternating weeks from Best Movies Never Made. Nice. So um, looking forward to, to checking that out. So uh, I can tell you, I got plenty of TV never made. I have pilots, <laughs> yeah. but no, I you, think you, you alone will fill up. Half <laughs> <of the schedule. laughs> yeah. So anyway, but, um, but uh, this is great. And I'm so glad that uh, we had this great experience with Walter, Eddie, and everyone who was in uh, the theater uh, yeah. to enjoy that wonderful time. And now you, wherever you are, you can share that experience of having been in the theater in fact, you can draw on con right now and then play the Q and A right after. That's It'll right. be just That's like right. it. Have some, have some uh, um, uh, pasta with some cheese. <laughs> It'll really have the Gary and Mark experience. That's right. Exactly. So, okay. Well, this was this was fun, and uh, a special shout out to Mark Rivera uh, for again uh, uh, mixing mixing it up for us and making it sound <laughs> so good. Thank you, Mark. We hope uh, fatherhood, new fatherhood, is treating you well. Um, and uh, we're, we can't imagine how tired you must be 
Um, but uh, you always find time for, for us, so we appreciate it. And uh, we uh, thank you, our audience, for always finding time for us. We appreciate you as well. And if you appreciate us, please rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, you can follow us on social at Inglorious Trek, Inglorious Trek Experts on Instagram, or Inglorious Trek Experts on Facebook. So until next week, our special thanks to Natalie Miscali, Peter Holmstrom, and Zach Raggetts uh, for all their associate producing, producing on the show. Uh, Peter always pulling such great clips for us. And uh, of course, uh, to you, the audience. So until then, next Friday, when we return, on behalf of Darren Doctor and myself, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.